This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Good morning, guys. Morning. How's it going? Good morning. Good, 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 good. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We are, at least some combination of us, are here every Wednesday morning. You guys listening can join us. Please do. Jump in here with the phone call, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two. 7866 or drops an email businessradio at sirusxm.com you can drop us an email during the show or if you're listening during the week as it's replayed feel free to jump on that way or hit us up on twitter at wmoneyball at wmoneyball is our handle up there we follow all of our sports analytics guests we follow the world of sports analytics and try to stay on top of it that way not a bad way to stay in touch with us and that world send us suggestions complaints ideas send us over-unders we do over-under segments at the end of the day we've got some good responses on a few topics from the last week we'll share with you over the course of the show we have a regular show today meaning we have two guests however one of them is in the studio we're delighted always when we have one of our guests in the studio we'll come up to that here in a little bit between now and then though open lines this first half hour guys what has caught your eye around the world of sports Eric. Well, last night, of course, oh, was a special night in baseball. But I have a different topic in baseball. But um, so at eleven thirty last night, I had to be working on something, and then I just you know looked at the screen to see what games are still going on. And the Phillies game was two two in the ninth. So I was like, all right, that's interesting. I'll put that on. And then of course it went to fifteen innings. And the thing <laughs> it made, and the Phillies won. But the thing in the bottom of the fourteenth, it made me think of Shane and Adi and the work you guys have done on defense because a guy on the Phillies miraculously threw a guy out at the plate. Which saved the I mean, saved, it literally saved the game. The game's over if he's not tagged out of play. And he was tagged out by replay by about maybe two inches. And then, of course, I flipped on the Yankee game, mm-hmm. which was at that point. I was fast asleep just for public. At, at that point, it was 12 to 11. <laughs> Yankee, the Yankees blew an 11 to 10 lead, a 12 to 11 lead, eventually won at 14 to 12. They were down by about eight runs early They were down eight game. to two early yeah. on in the game. But again, the last out of the game, at least according to StatCast, Aaron Hicks, who was the center fielder, who both, by the way, hit a two-run homer to keep the game with two outs in the ninth with two, two strikes to, t- to take, to take the lead. The lead. Yeah. But he ran as he, apparently the fastest he's ever run really? to catch a ball. And he made a diving catch. We'd say the situation, 14 to 12 Yankees, bases loaded, yeah. two outs in the no, ninth, the game. catches one in deep left center field. I right. saw the catch. I didn't know the bases situation. That was a game-winning hit. Oh, the game's, oh, over. It's game's 15 over. to 14. But here's, yeah. of course, we don't, won't see this maybe unless they publish it, but StatCast has an algorithm that tells you the probability that they catch a ball. And it's, uh, it's notorious for being a closed secret. You can't tell what's under it. And basically, it's based on the time and distance. And I'm just curious to know what they're going to give this number. Yeah, right. And what I've often seen is super-duper catches like this show up with numbers that are not that small. And then they turn around and say, well, the reason why they're not that small is it has to do with your jump and how fast you ran. And, and so therefore, the algorithm doesn't consider everything. It doesn't. Well, their view is, is if you look gorgeous doing it, that doesn't mean it was a hard catch. That's certainly true. That's, Derek, a, Derek, that's right. Derek, Derek Jeter, Jeter that true. Have, you know, basically invented that. 
<laughs> he certainly did. At, at no, shortstop, you would agree. Right? He looked amazing making routine. What, well, no. what other shortstops would have made routine? But one of the things that's very difficult is the data on this is not precise enough. So a very just a foot or two can, t- can turn a, a catch from makeable to unmakeable, and they don't have any of that resolution. Well, so yeah. the probability can shift enormously. I, I think yeah. we, obviously the great news about advanced analytics today is I think you would agree it's not that Derek Jeter. Shane didn't have glove skills. Yeah. He still had glove skills. He just couldn't get to the ball. And, for example, you could make the comment also in football. It's not like, for example, you throw a ball to Jerry Rice today. Jerry Rice is catching the football. Jerry Rice is not getting to the football. Right. And so the thing that advanced analytics can tell you, which is what you said for Jeter all along, you never said Jeter can't catch the ball anymore. No. You just said his range is terrible and he's not getting to the ball. Right. He has to 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 make spectacular looking plays on on, on balls that other fielders would probably have done in a more routine fashion. But he didn't do it intentionally. He didn't make these. No. 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 I mean, he was earnestly trying to get to that ball as fast as possible. It just, he was not as fast. But yeah. But you guys started this observation with the with with this the stat that that the the center fielder ran faster than than he has ever and he's not that's slow. What, that's what Statcast said. Yeah, so that but that's but that just, means faster than he has ever run in the time that Stat Class has been tracking this, which is like two years or whatever. Yeah, but still, it's, I mean, but right? There, but there's yeah. a, there's a general thing here that. I think we'll hear more about, and I would, if I were a GM or a coach, I would want much more of these data. Some way of knowing when a player is at his top, at least effort. You kind of what you really mm. want to know is something like effort. You know, you yeah. want to know is the guy putting in the work, is the guy trying as hard as whether it's practice or a game. And what you're revealing is that they've they've got this. They're able to do this. They've got an eleventh gear. Yeah. So it's so neat that in this moment, which is you know as. If it, just shy of being in the playoffs or the World Series, other than that, this is as critical a moment as a guy can play in. And then he's got this 11th gear, as you said. So yeah, what you on. could do, if you wanted to kind of evaluate player, uh, an interesting way to evaluate players is if, say, for example, we had their speed on every single catch that they've ever made. Um, Which we almost do for the last And we years. essentially do. And then we just see if that, you know, plot that against... The leverage of the situation. Correct. Oh, yeah. But right. which players are, you know, are there a subset of players where they, they kind of can achieve that extra gear and specifically achieve that extra gear when it's a high, like a, an extra important situation? As, like as a a, different, it's like fielding clutch. So or I'll something throw something like out from, based on my somewhat limited experience in the outfield. You typically track your speed to get to the ball. Exactly as it lands, you don't. No one ever runs real hard and hangs out, right? So if you don't have to. Use so you it, don't have you to. Don't, so yeah. it's, a, it's a confounding factor, which is tough. But but so the Statcast folks at MLB, they 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 contrasted two plays: one just like Aaron Hicks, which is insane, looks gorgeous, and another one that Cody Bellinger fielded, where he just sort of just looked like he picked it out of the air without even working. And they their algorithm claimed the two were the same probability of success and with the, the reason why you didn't notice it was Cody Bellinger's reaction time and jump right. was so fast yeah wow. that he, he got to it's that so ball good. so beautifully mm-hmm. and but the thing is and I actually commented saying well they're not the same because he was out in, in right field and the ball was off to the side and as a former a somewhat outfielder much easier to immediately know where the ball is hit when it's to the side of you okay. when it's hit directly at you in center field you the first thing you do is go huh <laughs> and you have to see where yeah, it goes I, I, again, we, 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 we don't know the model but uh i think 
there, it's, it's, it's entirely possible that, like, depending on the angle or something like that, it does have an equal probability of, of making it out. Just, uh, Could just, be. It looks sort of easier, I guess, to the naked eye. But I want to bring something else up about the analysis that uh, Shane just talked about, which was maybe speed versus leverage. It's one of those things where, to the layperson, you might say, well, I want him to have fast speed all the time. Actually, I don't. And this is more of a people analytics problem, which is you want someone who leverages their speed when they need their speed, but you don't necessarily, if you want to think of it, call it wisdom, call it, you know, finite resource reservation. Why should I absolutely sprint for a ball if I can routinely catch the ball? So actually, to me, that plot would show not only something about the maximum speed, but in some sense, I would expect, let's call it efficiency. You could use that as a measure of efficiency mm-hmm. of a player. Yeah. But this is where baseball is kind of not as interesting as some of the other sports, because especially basketball and, 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 uh, and yeah. hockey, where it's just effort all the time is, is more important. And so having some sense, you know, Eric raises an interesting, complicating variable, and that is resource allocation. Yeah, yeah if um, that's true. I but, mean, I, I would be fascinated, sorry to interrupt, but I would be fascinated by this in hockey because, you know, we. For sure. You know, being able to kind of measure soccer. that effort, like the, the yeah, if, if soccer and hockey, being able to kind of measure that, kind of being able to do that jump on the puck or, or, or being able to get into the corners at a faster rate or, or, or whatever. I mean, we already know that kind of at the aggregate level, the whole population of hockey players change when, when it comes playoff time. Playoff time well, versus regular season. Well, we, we think we know that. that I, I want to know the yeah. measurements. No, and, it, it would then, be nice to have some facts on that. And then when you go into overtime. Yeah, I mean, this is, exactly. This, I've always wanted to know. The measurables have to be able to tell us that they're, they're jumping it up some percentage. Yeah. Five, ten, twenty. I don't know, but it, it seems... Palpable when you yes. watch it, or maybe, Agreed. or maybe I want to make a different play, but maybe, or maybe it's what Jeff Cedar said, which is all horses slow down as the race goes yep. on, and so we'll, we can find that out. Much but let me just—I wanted to bring up something. So I was looking last night. You were mentioning Cody Bellinger, and some stat came across the screen last night. And then I looked at his stats, and you know the guy—it's not impossible he could win the Triple Crown, but that led me to do a very interesting analysis, which is the following: We'll be I, the judge of that. Eric. Okay, I thought it was interesting. <laughs> You're right. You will be in the fans here on Wharton Moneyball. <laughs> We'll be a judge of it. So when I was a kid, I always thought the major league average average, base batting average, was somewhere in around the 270 range. Maybe I'm remembering wrong. 265. Okay, 265. Okay. So I want each of you guys to guess. We could do this in the over-under segment, but not everybody will be here. I use 270. You agree there's roughly 12 hitters on each team and 30 teams, so 360 people that bat roughly in the major leagues. What number of that 360 do you think are batting at 270 or above, right now? Oh, well, right now the average is lower because the batting average has sunk substantially. Okay, I'm asking you yeah. what number out of 360 players do you think are batting at 270 or above? The only reason 100? I got 100? 100, okay. What's your guess? No, uh, uh, so I would guess with 360, so 180, I'd say closer to about 75, 60 to 75. Wow, I, I don't have an intuition for this. I would have been, I would have drifted off of halfway, but I wouldn't have drifted anywhere near yeah, as low it, as you guys. All right, the, the, is the answer in the American League is 37, and the answer in the National League is 35. So oh, total, wow, you're right on. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's the average is very low this year. I also was reading yesterday that I think there's fewer than ever hitters over 300 right now. So I'll tell like, you the exact like, number. I just looked last night right, as well, because yeah. I was looking at different points yeah, of distribution. Totally. There are 10 players above 300 in the American League, yeah. and 10 above 300 in the National League. There you go. Wow. All right. It's uh, what's interesting. Of course, there's some great hitters still doing the job. Yeah, what's Cody Bellinger at right he's now? At he's at last at before last night's game. He was at 332 with 34 homers and 77 RBIs. 
ridiculous. Guys, one of the big events over the weekend was the British Open, of course. Shane Lowry walked, it seems, if you weren't paying attention, it seems like he walked to this. He, he kind of did, but it was a it was an impressive effort. And before we dive into it, we've got a phone call. Mike from Alabama wants to talk about British Open. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Good morning, gentlemen. I love the I love the show. Thank you for having me on. I was uh, captured watching that event this weekend and reading David Epstein's range, which I think you guys recommended a few months back, and whether or not golfers study how much time they should prepare at a course like Port Rush, and uh, if if it makes sense for somebody like a Shane Lowry to go all in. For that year and specialize on the course or just continue playing a larger schedule also guys like tiger woods are playing shorter schedules and maybe focusing in and i just wanted to see if you had any thoughts about that in contrast to david epstein's book which i think you guys mentioned great mike thanks for the question appreciate thanks for listening appreciate your calling in as well i think it's a great question you guys have any thoughts on that well so there's a couple things um one thing in golf which was interesting about shane lowry i mean he is irish but he's if you, i don't know if they, they, the republic of ireland not northern irish he grew up four hours from the course so people say well he grew up on the course actually no roy mcelroy grew up at that course yeah. not <clears throat> shane lowry but he had played it before he had won there as an amateur he had won the irish open on that course so he knew that course extremely well, as did, by the way, his caddy, which, and that was my response to Mike's thought, which is, there's definitely, a, it would be great for a player to play a course. Yeah. Matter of fact, Tiger Woods, one of the most, besides him being an amazing golfer, he will tell you he remembers every golf shot he's ever taken. And, like, he can tell you how many yards, where he was aiming, etc. The caddy, though, the question is, how much does the player playing the course more add above and beyond the knowledge of the caddy that's already sitting there who has intimate knowledge of this course. But Eric, you got to divide a little bit the 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 cold knowledge and facts of a course from the psychological experience of a course. Big especially, difference. Especially, so I especially when agree. it's in these conditions like Ireland and Scotland. So one of the things that you're essentially we're raising is, is there a home field advantage in golf? I mean, can you... Uh, or or I mean, can you generate it? Can you generate yeah. it? Because one of the things that we've realized in home field advantages across sports is it's, it's caused by a bunch of things, but clearly one component is familiarity. And every athlete you talk to will mm-hmm. say familiarity and obviously mm-hmm. time preparation of the travel, mm-hmm. but they all say it just feels good to be at home. And I wonder whether there is a home court well, advantage uh, or potentially what the question, the caller's question was, is it worth it to invest in a course and make it your home so that when that course comes around the schedule, you have an advantage. He yeah. was suggesting this other piece as well, which was in contrast to David Epstein's range argument. I don't think that would apply here. I think Epstein no. is talking much more developmentally across sports, and I don't know that he would extend the argument to play lots of different golf courses to develop a, a, an adaptability in, in golf. But but his first part of his question, I agree, is terrifically interesting. And, and just strategically, as golfers think about this, would it make sense... I mean, we do know real quickly, don't we know that that you know if the if the if the U.S. Open is at Oakmont, won't guys kind of swing by over the course of the year and pick up some extra rounds they, as they can? They absolutely do, absolutely. As a matter of fact, Mike's question, to be honest with you, without I, I mean, Adi is my witness. I actually wrote down home field in golf as one of the things I wanted to talk about today. So thanks to Mike from Alabama, and I was thinking about how you would measure that from a statistical perspective. So here's how, the thought I had. Let's imagine you could look at someone's score in a given event compared to the field. So this is an exceedance. Did they do above or below? Because I don't want to just use their score because maybe it was a hard day, maybe it was a hard weather. So I'm going to use their score relative to the field. 
And I can imagine just running a simple regression, or I could do something more fancy based on maybe, let's say, the number of rounds they've played at that course before. Within some window yeah, of yeah. that. Well, I was going to get to yeah. that. So I could use frequency, which we say in marketing, how many rounds. I could use recency, how recently was it. I could use a decay-weighted recency if you wanted. I could use even, back to Mike's point from Alabama, I could use how far did the person grow up from the course. Because one of the things I was thinking about with Shane Lowry is, on the one hand, you could say, well, the fans are rooting for him. But the immense pressure yeah, could go Rory. the other way. Yeah, Rory. So, yeah, Rory exactly. May have felt you know, in fact, a little I was wondering if it was day. one of those things where there might be an interior max. I'm like, you want to grow up close to that course, but not too close. Well, hold on. We can come up with other people. I mean, there's probably a whole century of this, but certainly Tiger Woods and Torrey Pines. You know, for early on, that was like he he did really well there, and that was more or less his home. I course, was just right? commenting that you could actually do not, I mean, not that difficult, a statistical analysis of exceedance versus the field as a function of a bunch of covariates that represent your summary at that mm-hmm. course. Yep. I, I can tell you that the g- golf bettors, player course interactions are an important part of golf betting. So it's a real thing. So, and, it's, and, you know, people talk about this on, on TV, and, and it just it's one of these things they talk about on Don't TV that talk- actually bears out in the data. That's And it's not... I don't know how much of it is familiarity. Yeah, I was going to say familiarity it's, versus just the course kind of matches your play it. style, that's, that's right? right. That's, It'd but, be, but the, you'd have to try and separate those out. Right. But the the fact that that exists, yeah. it kind of deepens the question of can you mm-hmm. cultivate it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what's interesting is that if I were modeling this, I would model the course in terms of how much the value is on the, the, the first shot, the second shot. They obviously have names. I'm showing my ignorance here. I know the putt, and I know that, you know, they, they hit off the tee. You know, the last shot, <laughs> shot from the fairway? Is that right, shot mean? from the fairway, right? And there's these middle names. You have all these, you know, what, that second and third oh shot. God. What are those called? You know, I've only watched one golf tournament, and that was, of course, the, 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 the Tigers' victory. And I thought that was a win. We all talked about how that was an number. Oh, that Tiger victory. I found victory. myself yeah, I watching, that one. watching golf on TV. <laughs> Never had done that this before. Year, the ahead. Masters this year. So, but I think that, that from a statistical perspective, it's very interesting because you can divide the game into these components, match up the course, and and that's different from home field advantage. So, if you're arguing, the, is the advantage coming from for right. the betters' perspective by matching play to to what's important in different courses? That's different from saying, oh, this this person um, plays that, here a lot. That, that's a I 100% agree, and that is exactly that's an important part of how they do it. For, you know, some some courses favor the big hitters, some courses penalize if you miss the right fairway and that matches up with let me just case. bring up one this is probably a third order effect but we might as well bring it up since we're going since we're talking about it let's imagine rory mcelroy's home course is royal patras which it probably is let's imagine to do well on that course you really have to chip the ball well well maybe rory mcelroy grew up therefore chipping the ball really well yeah. because his oh, where sure. he was trained for sure. it required you to have a certain skill to play well on that course so another form of home field advantage could be if you literally your game is better in a dimension that gets to Shane's point yeah. to which is built for a given course yeah and I, mean, like, I, I think it would be an interesting question the extent to which you can actually predict to a certain extent a player's play style Given knowledge of their home course, like does do, is, is does their no, home does knowing their home course predict what kind of play style would, they develop as a professional? It would golfer? require a, a strong type of course, and most yes. courses don't have such distinct. No, that, flavor, that's but, right. I think it would probably only be relevant for sort of a, a kind of the, the the tales of these courses, like yeah, yeah, more yeah. extreme courses. I I, I uh, have a, had a different thought over the weekend. I wondered if we could use analytics. We, this is a Mark Brody question. Could, or Jake Nicholas, could could we use analytics to understand what happened in Jordan Spieth? 
if if we mm-hmm. can, can we look at his game and ask before number twelve, a Sunday number twelve at, at at Masters a few years ago, before and after, yeah. if we just ran that comparison, could we learn? What happened to his game? Like, where do we see it? Is it everywhere? Things just kind of collapsed? Or can we say, you know, here was the break. This is the part of the game. We ought to be able to, right? I mean, we've got enough data. Shouldn't we know where the distinction, what, what difference there is? I think that the interesting question is, is there a fundamental shift in his game? Or was it just the random components? Because... It, it, it seems like a fundamental sa- shift. Seems, we should be able to be able to yeah. determine whether there's a fundamental shift. Well, well, it's yeah, been I, pretty dramatic. Yeah, I think there's no question there has been a shift. And then, I mean, it's just it's too pronounced over too long a period of time for it not to be the case. But the question is why? Like, what has happened? Well, just building audio on your point, let's imagine I told you, and they actually talked about this a little bit during the British Open when at one point Spieth got into contention a little bit on like er, Friday, early Saturday. Oh, yeah, early, early Saturday. Saturday, he kind of got into contention. They mentioned that. His uh, putting stats, he obviously was one of the great putters. I think they said he was something like now 150th on tour, so his putting has actually just plummeted. His closest to the pin, like, you know, his iron play to the greens, he was top 10. Now he's somewhere in the 50s. And so, and his driving, actually, at least according to him, he's never had a worse year driving. So, so the question everything? is, it's really, well, you asked the question, is <laughs> yeah. it just his putting? And the answer appears to be no. Like, every aspect everything. of his game has gotten worse. And you can make an argument, unlike, I'll make it up, unlike Brooks Kepka, who can bomb at 340 over a bunker. Spieth needs to be good at all parts of his game to win because he's not the biggest guy out there. He doesn't drive it the farthest. He's not, you know, he needs everything working. And so you could argue, I think it's an interesting analysis to say, in some sense, every facet has gotten worse. It it is interesting. And and actually, you're you're raising the putting thing makes me wonder, let's come back to Adi's question. He was famously good at like a 20-foot putt. And I'm not even exaggerating. Mm-hmm. He was famously good, supposedly. And now this is where Audie's going to jump in and say, do we really know whether he was good? Right. Because it turns out that there's a lot of luck mm-hmm. in putting. And so maybe a part of his run was fueled by, you know, yeah, he was good at 20-footers. And, you know, I'm talking, you know, I'm talking roughly. But maybe there was some chance there that just failed to persist after a while. What interests me, is it possible to create like a – Baseball card for golfers, and if there were, what would you put on the back? You love oh. the box score baseball. I card do. I love like if yeah, I just good. summarize a player's kind of career. I mean, I, this is my this. Is, I, in many ways, it's why I do what I do now. Because as a kid, I would stare at the backs of baseball cards, Wait. trying to understand the game. And it, every sport should have a, yeah, a so back. I love what you <laughs> said. This great a couple, idea. You said this a couple of weeks ago about soccer. That you said it, the game analogy is box score. And you mm-hmm. said this thing is that you can't look, at least historically, you haven't been able to look at a box score, a soccer box score to the extent that it right. exists, and understand what actually happened. And so you're suggesting a, a reasonable criteria for a good box score, and by analogy, a good baseball card, is that you actually understand the player or the game mm-hmm. when you look at this distilled version of what they did. Yeah, one, just building on Cade, your question, and Adi's point about a box score, the only thing about golf, but it's true for every sport, you know, when Tiger Woods was as great as he was, The reason, part of the reason, there's lots of reasons. Part of the reason is he knew he was the best iron player in the world, which meant if he was 180 yards in the hole, he could get it within 15 feet. If he was 160, within 12 feet. So part of it is... Jordan Spieth, if you know your iron game's not good, what does that force you to do? It means I may have to drive the ball 20 yards longer than I'd like to because I know if I'm 180 to 200 yards from the hole, I'm not going to get it close enough to get birdie. So in some sense, one part of your game going poorly stresses the yeah, rest a, of the a game. A lack of confidence in one aspect of your game will strain 
basically exactly. your, your the, the other aspects of your game. And so I, you could kind of almost imagine that what, one thing that could lead back is this kind of positive feedback loop where things, you know, things do kind of tend to kind of fall, fall apart in a Together, correlated yeah, way, right, you know. Right. Exactly. That, yeah, there you go. Now we have a question. Now we have a question. Is it possible it, that's really interesting. And like that's kind of a mechanism for how right. we so can we're, we're, degenerate we're, we're like su- this. We're suggesting that it isn't ever the strong form of this hypothesis is that it's never one part of the game that falls apart. It's that one may lead, but it drags the rest of the game down with it. Well, so let's just talk about two simple analyses you could do. One is, let's even just imagine what's on the ranking or the strokes gained. Let's say there's four or five dimensions, you know, driving, iron play, sand play, putting. Number one, are those correlated? That's one thing we could look at. Number two, which is the causal mechanism, like let's say if you don't do a structural equation model or a path analysis, which one goes first? Like in some sense, does someone lose their ability to putt, which means therefore they have to try to get it closer to the green, which means their iron play suffers, which means, oh, by the way, they have to drive the ball, which means their driving starts getting worse. It would be interesting to look at the sequential order, not just are they related. And and again, you could kind of imagine, you know, again, another hypothesis would be the more kind of psychological aspects, I guess. Putting probably represents more of a kind of psychology versus kind of mechanics, you know, balance than I think driving would. I don't know. It's it's hard to say. It's a hypothesis, but maybe if putting some more psychological element of the game, maybe that as a, as a function of failure on the course falls apart first, well, and you- then it kind of all degenerates from there. Well, why don't we also look at the age hypothesis around that? So, uh, Shane, I think you would agree that it's likely that um, let's say as golfers get older, that the physical part may be going before the mental part. I'm saying within the okay, age so, range so, so that they're you, in. No, I'm saying why I, not I, use the age part as a way to test that theory as well? It's great. This is all predicated on being able to build such a model. You think you could? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> of course. That's Eric awesome. is eternally optimistic. So, so you, With the right we've data. Got, we've, got, we've got good longitudinal data here. So you, in, in, in building these causal models, you, that's really helpful, right? Presumably, so that's that's good fun. We, one, we, one, the four of us are a great mixture of you know kind of enthusiasm and skepticism. <laughs> I think we could do this. Yeah. <laughs> Adi's not speaking because he doesn't want to be the no. It's wet golf. Blanket. I don't know how. Yeah, to figure it's it the out. golf thing. One more golf thing because we love you, Adi. One, one more golf thing. Uh, did, they don't did, switch to football. Did you pick up on the whole uh, Kepka Holmes thing on Sunday, where Kepka is one of the fastest playing golfers in the? In the in the in the world, and Holmes is one of the slowest, and they were paired together in the next to last pairing, and it, it just raises this question of to what extent does that affect a guy? Mm-hmm. And and Kepka, you know, my God, the guy has been in contention in seemingly every major for the last two years. It's just remarkable, but he never could quite get it going on Sunday. And of course, we're just telling stories, and of course, the null has to be the place you put your chips, but. Was he affected by playing golf with the, one of the slower guys in the entire in the entire tournament? I, well, I don't think the question is if, because I think he was to some degree. Now the question is, and it would be my same comment about you know uh, you know home field. And matter of fact, like you guys talk about this, Cade, when you and uh, you know Rufus look at home field in different sports. I think it exists. I think it exists in golf. I think slowness play affects things. But how much are we talking about well, here? Uh, that's are we what? talking about? One half of a stroke? Are we talking about two? I mean, how much are we actually talking about compared to? And then I want to norm that and say, let's imagine Brooks Kepka played with, you know, uh, 
uh, J.B. Holmes a thousand times and played with a fast golfer a thousand times. What does that make him go from the second best golfer, the first best golfer in the world, to thirtieth? Does that like how far does that move him? Because I want to norm this, not to say because most people don't know what half a stroke means. Yeah. I want to know yeah. does that take him from the f- best golfer in the world to the thirtieth, the fiftieth? No, and I mean I I I. I always love your kind of ongoing kind of emphasis on things like effect sizes because that is i think the right way to think about it and part of that is just sort of i'm kind of curious and this is something i don't know about golf what is the kind of variation among oh, golfers good. in terms of kind of this this time of play so so, so i mean I, I assume there's course officials kind of there are trying to reduce that variation the, the, well there is but they it's not binding for a while, and yeah. so I think there's I think there's pretty good variation, and it's a wonderful question. It's an empirical question. I have a I have a vague memory of one stat, which is not it's not a stat. It's an observation. Yeah. Two guys were announced. I don't even know which two guys it was. Two guys were announced on the first tee, and someone measured the time between the time they were announced and the time they struck the ball. And for one pairing, the difference was more than a minute. It was wow. like twenty eight seconds average, versus yeah. no, just on the first tee. Oh, just so the first yeah. it's, okay. it's just an observation, and that's not a regular shot. But it gives you some sense of the potential. If it's that big, I mean, it's this, a long time. This thing that Kepka said yeah. it, was, it was so entertaining to me because he's like, he's, this quote I just saw this morning. I think he's like, the guy doesn't. He's talking about Holmes. The guy doesn't do anything before it's his turn, and it's just it just begins to feel like the way you feel when you're playing around with your buddies and you and you. And some guys are slow and it's frustrating, and you're like, get ready and do your shit before you. It's actually time to hit the ball, so that when it's your turn, you step up and hit the ball, and we can get moving. Yeah. And it's just entertaining to me to hear this professional golfer kind of grousing. That's the beauty of my game. I can hit a bad shot fast or slow, so I might as well hit it no, fast. That's right. Get up that's and right. hit that bad shot. My specialty is actually just being quick about my terrible shooting. <laughs> We have two guests this morning. The first is in studio. We're always excited when we have guests in studio. Ron Yurko is here. Ron, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. Ron is a PhD student at Carnegie Mellon, you know, school that's you know reasonably good school over there in Pittsburgh, <laughs> and uh, a big football analytics guy. And by big football analytics guy, I mean he is in the vanguard. I would say in the vanguard. Not only that, he's not a follower, just kind of plugging away. He's He's like carrying the flag, man. He's he's rounding people up. He's pushing things forward, and, and he's doing it publicly. He very publicly. Hey. That's what it's like a mission. He's evangelical. I would even say, Ron Yurko. <laughs> you can follow him at stat underscore Ron at stat underscore Ron, and we just couldn't be happy to have you. So let's hear a little bit. One, why are you here? Tell us why you're on campus. Um, we know, but tell our, our listeners why what you're doing this week. Yeah. So this week. Audie asked me to join and instruct the Wharton Moneyball Academy and training camp students. Remind them. us what the Wharton, Money, Wharton Moneyball Academy and training camp Yeah, so are. Wharton Moneyball Academy was started about five years ago as a way to teach high school students. What started passively? It just happened, Audie? Uh, it didn't just happen. I mean, Wharton has been developing summer programs for high school students for a number of years, and we have a sports business initiative, and, and uh, the former director, Scott Rosner, had was running one, and he said, you know what, what if we try one for, for statistics? And actually, I thought back then, who's going to come to this? You know, I thought maybe I'd get 20 applications yeah. and I wouldn't know if we could we could do it. And the first year we, we started late, we had 50, 50 kids, 55 applications. They were all great. And now we're up to, uh, it's our fifth year. We do it for three weeks and it's an intensive seminar in statistics and computing mm-hmm. and all in the context of sports. We get hundreds of applications. They're, they're amazing. Armand might be able to tell you about them because he's a fresh experience with them. And then we right. started this year a new one, sort of a training camp, just a, a quick a one week uh, hit one-week version. A little bit younger, right. A little so, younger, a little less, less experience, but just so, as much fun. So Ron is, you know, when you're a PhD student, you work with other 
students there on campus. You do some work with undergrads. What, what's been your experience this week working with this younger, next generation? You've got how many kids? 50 in the camp? Well, 80 and camp? one and 50 in the training camp. Yeah. In the training camp. So, and you're working with both of them. Okay, so what's your, expo- like, what's your, what's your reaction when you walk into this room oh, with all these guys? It's mind-blowing. Like, what sense? How advanced they are at their age. Like, yeah. I'm thinking when I was in high school. Yeah, like, it is. You know, I'm spending my time thinking, oh, I could still play college baseball, maybe, et cetera. <laughs> and these kids are already diving into R, making visualizations, right. getting data. I mean, one kid's doing something with pitch FX data. You know, he's not even a senior in high school. I'm mm-hmm. looking at this like... This is on it's a new age. And many right? of them have coding experience in, in classes in high school. They know Python. They don't know R, but it translates well. And they're doing amazing stuff. They're, the, the RTAs, which are, are undergraduates who help them, have deep knowledge. They're able to help them extensively. They're putting okay. together. I'm so excited for Thursday when our academy students present what they've done. And, you know, over the years, it's been terrific. Some of the kids have, have gone on to amazing jobs and uh, jobs with, with teams, jobs with businesses. And they're just in college now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ron, mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question. As a parent of a student that did the Moneyball Academy, the thing that's amazed me the most, I'd like your thought about this, is it's not so much that they know tons of stuff, which they do, it's their ability to just pick up something and learn it because they've either learned a structured programming language, whether it's Python or something else. It's just in some sense, if you say to them, well, learn how to do this, learn how to apply this package, they just either watch a video, they grab the package, they dive in and do it. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, I mean, for the students I'm working with, a large part of them in this training camp, they don't have prior coding experience. And so I'm just coding live along with them. And they're able to follow along perfectly fine. You know, it's, it's amazing, actually, how great they are at this right away. <laughs> That's great. Real quickly, one last word on the academy and the training camp. Give us a rundown of some of your guest speakers. Oh, uh, my. This is, I mean, it gets better every year, and now it's becoming ridiculous. It, it's amazing. And I have to say, uh, our show is a great source. Feeder. For, for, fe- feeder for, so Neil Payne, who's been a regular on our show, and he's a regular at Moneyball Academy. Yep. He's a superstar, rock star. We've had Annie Duke. Uh, um, we had uh, Dean Oliver, mm-hmm. incredible basketball mm-hmm. scholar, and uh, practically, you know, we had... We had uh, Brian Burke. Mm-hmm. Um, we had Todd Stucy, a former professional football player, who came and talked about analytics. I'm just glad he's a great in studio guest on our show as well. Yeah, yeah and, and we also have uh, you know the local heads of the local teams. We had Alec Halaby of the Eagles. We were having Andy Galdi coming, and we actually have Namita, Namita's coming from the uh, Namita came yesterday. Uh, she actually talked about hockey, which was great because yeah. the, the team people they did just don't talk. Do the kids <laughs> have any idea how fortunate they are for this? How unusual it is to have that. My gosh. Okay. Do kids ever have any idea? They just take it all for granted. <laughs> all right. So listen, Ron, tell us more about the work that you're doing. I, I laughed the other day when you told me you're only a second year PhD student. I feel like you've been such a fixture in the online analytics community that I just figured you were, I don't know, faculty by now. Well, I something. think that's because I tweet too much. That's, <laughs> that's the main thing. In tweet years, in tweet years yeah. you're actually a fifth year PhD student. Years. Uh, so tell us what what um, what you're studying there, and give us the full portfolio because my sense is it's not that they're going you're not gonna get a PhD in football analytics. That's correct. Yeah. So I'm a statistics data science PhD student at CMU, um, and I primarily work with Catherine Rader, another professor, Max Gazelle, on problems regarding multiple testing, selective inference, and genetics and genomics. That's like my main area. That's going to be thesis dissertation. Okay. And then on the side for fun, you know, I love sports. And CMU, the great thing about it is the culture has been really promoting of you know, doing things on the side, doing things on your own. Is that right? And sports analytics is like the optimal opportunity for me to learn new things, right? So Why is that? Well, it's 
you know, I'm familiar with the data. I understand what I should see, right, if I do some hierarchical model of NFL player effects. If I'm not seeing Tom Brady come out on top, I'm probably doing something wrong, right? Shane's <laughs> smiling right now. <laughs> well, no, I, 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 I'm smiling for two because you said the magic words, Tom yeah. Brady. But you also, because I, it, it very much echoes with me that I think, you know, as an, an applied statistician myself, I feel like I've really kind of increasingly gravitated towards domains where I actually kind of know, having subject domain knowledge in that is very in whatever you're actually practicing statistics in is tremendously valuable I kind of I moved a little bit out of kind of molecular biology kind of genetics applications myself that I did in my early career because I would run analysis and I would get like this big list of genes out and then I would have to trust a biological collaborator right. to to tell give me you know is this a reasonable like story or not so Shane, sports or urban what, stuff what, I can yeah, do that myself I was going to say so you've migrated from that you've always had sports going yeah. and now you've added urban analytics is that partly because yeah that's right partly because I kind of and, and it's not it's not a coincidence I happen to study Philadelphia specifically because I know the most it's the city I've lived in the longest I think there's a great general lesson here yeah. that is not not trivial that no matter how tooled up you are if you really want to understand and make deep contributions, you generally need to couple that with domain expertise. Because, because we kind of like, I mean, we, we talk about it a little bit on the show, but model building and data analysis is very kind of incremental. You're constantly doing little internal sanity checks as you build your model and stuff right. like that. And it's a lot easier to do that if you kind of know the subject domain. Right. So interesting, one of the questions that we generally ask our guests when they come in is what should they be learning? Because obviously they're, they're kids. And we've gotten some disparate results, but one of the things that I'll just start with was Dean Oliver had a beautiful ordering and he started with sports know the sport then he went to programming followed by statistics then databases and then communications a, and then and others, very... others had very different views. Some would say, if you cannot communicate, you aren't valuable. And they'll put that at a higher level. Where statistics and programming go in, like which one do you want to know more of? Yeah. That rest. So there seems to be a lot of debate about it and a lot of the actual applicants. But one of the things that clearly is important is you've got to know your subject uh -huh. matter. And uh -huh. that's generally my, my, uh, my observation. And whenever I talk about a new project, I can't even begin to do an analysis until I dig into the right. actual... And, context and that often means you have to go put yourself in the hands of other people and as shane says that there's a limit to how how fluid that can be we're talking to ron yurko ron is a phd student at carnegie melanie's on campus this week helping out with some of the academies that are being run that we're running that audi's running and um ron is a leader in football analytics he's absolutely there's no no overstating it. he's a leader in football analytics i mean ron you've just published a working paper working with motion tracking data next ngs nfl calls it ngs their next generation stats tell us a little bit about that because i feel like it very much is i mean it's it's written it's out there you even say in the papers like you kind of build a big structure and say well in the future we'll be able to populate this and it's modular and but you're you're it's it's just of the moment it is at the edge of what's going on in football analytics so tell us what it is yeah so that paper really was months of discussion in our stats and sports reading group we have at Carnegie Mellon. Tell us about so, the reading group. So Francesco Matano, Lee Richardson, Taylor Pospisil, they were they actually just graduated. They defended their dissertations in April. So they were finishing up and wanted to do a fun sports project. And then we have pit collaborators, uh, Pittstone, Nick Renard, and a professor Custis Pellicrinus in the CS department at Pitt. And then along with close advisor, a friend of mine, uh, Sam Ventura, used to be professor at CMU, director of hockey research at the Penguins. And it was this idea of 
How can we take the work that's done by Luke Bourne, Dan Cervone, the continuous time expected points value in basketball, and let's translate it to football? All right. So what we did was we decided to take, we have already our publicly expected points, win probability models at the discrete level, the play-by-play level. So real quickly, that means that this is something that people, various people have developed over time, and you've got a very good version, and you've made it very public, where for any game situation, you can say what the win probability is for the team with the ball, not having the ball. And you can then, by looking at the movement from the beginning of a play to the end of a play, you can say the points were added Expected points added as a result of that play, the win probability added as as a function of that play. But the limit of this, you're saying, is it's discrete. It's only between plays. Okay. That's what we've already got. And that's that's, that's like a great input to many, many, many analyses. Okay. And that ignores everything that goes on in between, right? So one of the great things that happened was I think arguably the biggest thing that's going to impact NFL football analytics is the fact that the NFL hired Michael Lopez to be their director of yeah, data analytics. Yeah. And then he spearheaded then this big data bowl, releasing six weeks of data from the 2017 season. And so this gives you then at the tenth of a second level the XY locations of every player on the field, along with XY of the ball. So what we're able to do then is we can compute – the, so what we do in the paper specifically is first we outline a framework of how would we how would we model the continuous point value of a play starting with the QB decision you know is it is it going to be is it is he going to throw the ball what happens if he throws the ball is it going to be incomplete assess then the probability of completion for various receivers or if it's a running play then how far is the ball how how far is the carry going to go all right so we focus then on this paper. We outline this framework, and then we focus on the ball carrier model, predicting the end of yard line, because ultimately that then dictates what the expected points and win probability value is. We don't need the exact XY location. We just need the yard line location. Okay, so you've reduced the problem to this thing that you can get your arms around now. So we're not going to deal with the passing piece. It's a big piece, but for the moment, we're not going to deal with it. And other people have already worked on that, right? Brian Burke's got a paper. Uh, Samir Deshbond, he had released a paper along with Kathy Evans. Samir is a co-founder of Wharton Moneyball Academy, so yes. So you're you're and you're going to import technology because the folks in basketball and and soccer and presumably hockey, but you know certainly Luke Bourne working with soccer and presumably basketball and, and have worked with these kind of continuous time expected points added models, right? Yep. Okay. So you're going to import some of that technology and you're going to focus very much on let's look at what happens on a running play and let and we're going to and our 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 challenge is we can we predict the end yard line because if we can do that then we can get the expected points average. Yeah, Ron, I was just going to ask you, um, you mentioned you focus on the end yard line and the expected points added or win probability. Does it matter on a play, like, how you get there? Like, is it all that matters is the play gains seven yards? Does it matter whether it was a sweep? Let's even say we focus on runs. Does it matter what type of run? Does it matter whether it was a broken play? Does it matter whether it were missed tackles? Or all that matters, or all that you're focusing on, is the outcome of the play as opposed to what happened during it? Well, we think this granularity gets us as evaluating players better. Right. right, so the between play value, right. yeah, you can assess then team decision making. Great, it, that solves it. But then for assessing how the lineman is reacting, right, the decision of the for running sure. back and the movement, that's where you need a continuous time for value. For sure, absolutely. And and the amazing thing is you're gonna so a play might generate I don't know it's gonna what does an average play produce 
zero points out of that. Supposedly. Yeah, it should, <laughs> it should be yeah, on the average. Okay, anyway, but it's amazing you're going to partition the the effect of a play across 22 players, presumably. And 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 if we can do that, then we can really get down into actual yep. player contributions. Yeah, so right now, right, all we're doing is trying to get the proper measurement. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, there's going to be ways we can approach it of – how do we then attribute for an individual frame level right. the credit for everybody? Right. Right? Right. And honestly, I, you, know, you mentioned before, I think, um, a project of ELO ratings at batter pitcher. And yep. you can even do something at the continuous level of, say, looking at the ball carrier and the closest defender. Mm-hmm. The win-loss matchups of just, hey, this next yep. movement, who then won that next movement at the fraction of the second level, right? So th- there's going to be many ways, but the first step was really, can we actually measure the continuous value properly. Can I just add, we had Todd Stussy give a talk yesterday at a, to For, the students. Former NFL former lineman. 90, 90, uh, came up in 1994, and he played for 14 years, mostly for the, for the Vikings. And uh, I asked him, you know, how did anyone know whether you were any good? And his answer was, they basically didn't, but I can tell you one thing. <laughs> I was never as good as they thought I was, and I was never as bad as they said I was. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's very honest, and that's where we've been with offensive linemen. You know, that's, yeah. to some extent, I think that's true of every player because we think we can isolate the contribution of a player with our eyes and with our experience. Yep. It's a field of twenty-two people, so that's right. That we, yeah. We're we're deluding ourselves. Even the professionals, even the ones that are much better than we are, I think, are deluding themselves at the extent to which they can identify the individual separate from the other 21 it, people. And he said one year he made the Pro Bowl. I said, how did they know? He said, well, in a play, so one of the one of the defensive uh, ba- linemen broke their ankles uh, in, a, in a confrontation <laughs> with him. He said, and the guys, you know, it did nothing to do with it. It was just, it had nothing to do with what happened on the, on the, on the, on right. the field, my play. And, and he said, I got, a, I got a reputation of being yeah. an animal, and therefore they put me on the Pro Bowl. And then once you have a, <laughs> and then in that position where performance is yeah. completely ambiguous, once you have a Pro Bowl, there's going to be all this inertia to it. Okay, back to back to Ron's model. So, Ron, you've, we understand the problem now, and we understand the motivation for it. How much progress have you made on, on accomplishing that? Yeah, so I guess the first step is we really think this is the starting point of how we did this. And, I mean, right now we're just getting a single point estimate value of the expectation of the end of the yard line of the run. Mm-hmm. And so it, At every tenth of a second. Yeah. Okay. And so, like, we have these plots online then with the paper you can see. And I would say right now it's a little jagged, honestly, in terms of the movement. And yeah, I think that, that, that expected points moves around yeah, more than you want it to move around. Yeah, because right now, oh, I mean, we're not really accounting for any uncertainty in this. All right. This is really just a single expected conditional expectation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and it shouldn't wobble that much. We we hinted at the end of it. One of the things we're going to go for is actually doing. You have your whole curve, your density curve over the entire field, distribution of possibilities, and do a conditional density estimation. Oh, hold on, that's fascinating. So you imagine this visual where you literally have a distribution over every yard line this thing may end up. Yeah. Wow. But it is kind of jagged. If you think about a running play, I mean, lots of little things happen really, really quickly that affect how much space you have. I, right? That's that's a fair question. How do you know that it's too jagged? Well, it, I mean, no one's ever looked at this before. No one's ever yeah. seen these. Before. Well, it's that's just like my personal thing off the bat. But the one thing that's uh, also true about domain this, knowledge. Well, the nice. Well, the thing that would help with having a whole curve over this field is because once once you get to predicting a touchdown versus just getting the ball on first and whatever you know you get solid number of points from getting the touchdown and then immediately before that if you just end up on the goal line situation it's not going to be six points guaranteed right so then you just get the bump from that 
The, so we really, you know, we want to account for some uncertainty in this whole process. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. right now, though, we just have such limited data to do that. Yeah. L- let, me just, let me just say one thing, and then and Eric's going to jump in, but this domain knowledge. You were saying, oh, he knows this jacket because of domain knowledge. Nobody has domain knowledge of this. No. Nobody knows. <laughs> nobody has any sense. No one in the history of football knows how volatile expected points added is during the middle of a run. Right. None. So, so Ron, I don't literally mean what Cade was saying. You know, First of all, I do agree that it's interesting to have this idea of a probability distribution or a density of possible outcomes of a run. Don't you believe, maybe I'm mistaken, don't you believe that, let's call it the offensive coordinator's calling a play, has some idea of this? In other words, he's thinking to himself, I'm making it up, it's third and four, it's second and seven. All right, let's see. If we run this play, there's some chance. I mean, maybe he's not calibrated to like 62% or 40%, but don't you think that's the offensive coordinator's job is to understand at some level the probability distribution of plays? Probably between play, but not within play. What if the running back starts running, right? And then you have this whole situation of you know, wherever the players are out in the field, that's where there can be a various number of outcomes that could take place, depending on whatever situations happen with blocking. Well, let me ask a question. What angle is there the enough... linebacker takes towards them, Well, this is going to be my question for you then. Do you think the analysis you do will ever have an impact in the following sense? There's enough either reaction time or there's enough, like, you could train a running back to look for one hole versus another. Do you think what you're doing isn't just, well, I'll call it an academic exercise, but there's enough, like you say, if you had taken this path versus that one, now the running back learns something and does something different the next time. I believe it can eventually. If you think about strategies that can arise from, like I know with basketball plays and the continuous time value we see is, you know, the part of it is there's the fun, amazing things you can do with tracking data, absolutely. But if you think of just like, Optimal movements, right. and certain strategies that can work. Right, I'm so, I can I'm so get skeptical. the number at that. Now. Yeah, and I'm I mean, so I, skeptical. I, I hope yeah, eventually. Well, well, I, eventually. Well, I, I, I think that's the, more, the mission. That's yeah, not the more the immediate impact is evaluating which players, kind of yeah. with the same kind of substrate, yeah. with the same situation, do better than other players. And that's and a I, that's a valuable mission. Oh and my a, goodness! And I'm, the I'm, challenge. Everybody wants it. I would be fascinated if we if we could roll this out for every position. I would be fascinated just by kind of what what variation in that kind of talent. Is there actually that true kind of situational talent? Is there across positions? And it, would really, it also, I think, really gets at the value, yeah, the v- positional value, right? Mm-hmm. The differences between defensive lineman movement versus the pass coverage yeah. movement, yeah. right? That's what I think this can really help at. Here's the connection to Eric's question, I think, that, that might go through, and that is the, the distribution at the beginning of the play as a function of alignment. Because you would know that you once you have you're going to get there, just offenses uh, alignment versus the defensive alignment, and then especially if you know the quality of the players, and if you had that, these guys a lot of pre snap stuff is about moving people around, and offensive coordinators can do a lot on moving people around, and so I think yeah, that absolutely. would inform. I like that, that as opposed that's to exploitable. Play. Great point. That's yeah. exploitable yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah. I so, think within play is really about the players themselves, right? Yeah. The coaches. Right, right, right. All right, we're down to just a, just about a, a minute, Ron. Tell us what's coming next for you. Like, what are you working on right now? What are you excited about in football analytics? Yeah, beyond, so, beyond this, well, this, of course, is a big one. Yeah, so continuing this, I mean, we've done the measurement. We want to get the actual player attributions. That's all, That's the obvious next step. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm excited I'm going to be presenting this at Nessus in September, and then we're going to do this again at our, our own sports analytics conference we have in November. Let's stop there and tell us what those two things are, and please tell us about your conference in the fall. Yeah, so there's the New England Symposium Statistics Sports Conference that takes place in September every other year at Harvard, uh, run by Mark Lichtman, who is just an outstanding person that doesn't get enough credit. And then we have our own Carnegie Mellon Sports Analytics Conference 
This was really spearheaded by uh, Rebecca Nugent, our director of our undergrad program, and that's November 1st and 2nd. How many years have you been doing that? This is our third year. How many people come? We're getting around just about under 200 people, and we're, we're growing each of these years, wow. so it's pretty exciting. And you get industry folks as well as people like yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. And the one thing we do, I think that's great, is we make high school student registration completely free. Mm-hmm. So, because we really want students to get involved, and we have our reproducible research competition as well. It's mm-hmm. just only publicly available data, and you get some nice cash prizes. That's great. All right, listen, man. Good luck with that work. You're doing great work, not just for yourself, but for the industry. Very much appreciated. We're we're following you, of course. We hope you'll come back and talk to us again, Ron Yurko. Thank you for having me, Ron. You can follow him on Twitter at stat underscore ron at stat underscore ron. He's a Carnegie Mellon PhD student. He's very much at the vanguard of football analytics and we're delighted to have had him in studio this morning that has been the first half of wharton moneyball we still have a half to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to wharton moneyball on business radio welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Adi was here. He will be back. You guys can be here. Give us a shout. 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at crsxm.com. We're always happy to get emails, businessradio at crsxm.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle. It's a great way to reach out to us. Send us an over-under suggestion. Send us a complaint. Send us ideas. At WMoneyBall is our Twitter handle. Just just finished up with Ron Yurko, longtime friend of the program, first-time guest of the program, in studio. How fabulous was that? Oh, it's incredible. Um, and like I said, I mean, his, his, his paper on this kind of continuous time modeling of in-play kind of uh, activity, essentially, is, is, is really – I mean, it, as he sort of said, I, I think it's kind of the first step towards how we're going to be thinking about f- football in the future. And I'm just, sure. I'm just dreaming of a day where you know someone says, you know, no – you even asked him, you're not going to be just like a sports – I'm actually dreaming of the day where at a top staff program like Carnegie Mellon, someone's PhD dissertation and thesis can be all yep. about mm-hmm. sports. Yep. And people won't see that as like a smudge against the person. Like, you're not a real serious yeah, – Statistician, are you? That attitude has changed dramatically over my kind of professional lifetime, so I'm I'm pretty optimistic about Mm -hmm, that. mm -hmm. One of the things I really appreciate about what they did with that paper and the way they're thinking about it, it is such a big problem to move with this new technology from where we are now to where we want to be and expect to be. It is such a big problem that they're laying it out and saying, look, this is the first little bitty step. We're just kind of beginning to build the infrastructure that will allow over many iterations the entire community to advance to where we want to go. But I like the way you framed it at the end, Cade, when I maybe erroneously said, well, I wonder if, you know, players can have a chip in their brain and decide which hole to go based on this. No. You brought it to the important thing is, why are you studying this problem, and what could be the value in the NFL? Well, yeah. it could have a lot to do with alignment, an offensive coordinator play call. So I think the minute you focus on that, it also can help guide what analysis are you going to do to start. And I think that's really important, because there's a million things you could do, but why don't you actually start with an actual problem that someone could potentially use and try to solve? Well, that's an interesting it's an interesting you know, confluence of the two broad areas of analytics and football. And the big push, Eric, is on player evaluation. And that's where this thing is going to change the world in football. This motion tracking is going to change player evaluation. We're going to move, I mean, 10 years from now, these 
qualitative scouting grades will still be there, but they will just be one element. And guys will be will have all these quantitative, objectively measured, motion tracking based stats about every position at the individual level. It's going to transform the way we think about player evaluation. Yeah, the way I would view it is the same thing we do. You know, when we use machine learning, artificial intelligence in many fields today, they're great first pass algorithms to be able to say we want to do something that's scalable and reproducible and in real time. And now we can use that to say, we're thinking of drafting. We need to look at this player more carefully because the data has said so. I don't think the human element will go away. It won't. But the math and the computing can actually be a great first-pass algorithm to kind of say, you know, let's rank order them yeah, according we'll, to the we'll quant. have a greater sense for which positions actually kind of have well, that too. the variation and ability. Because, I, mean, I mean, we certainly pay now players very differentially depending on the kind of believed kind of scarcity of ability or, or, or variance of a particular position like quarterbacks are, are considered very valuable because we do not th- we think that there's a huge variance you know, we in their ability to- but we could actually have a more tangible you know kind of a century measure of that we gotta learn something from the fantasy football guys right this is what they spend time doing I mean this is I'm not saying using big data analytics but like I don't need to draft a running back, or I sorry, I don't need to draft a quarterback first because what's the difference? They're all going to yeah. basically throw for thirty touchdowns and fifteen interceptions, <laughs> right. minus Tom Brady. Um, what are we? So yeah. really, that's why you see they know this idea of variation and which positions have the greatest yep. variation. In fact, that's, that's right. all that fantasy drafting and football really is about. Yeah. Well, speaking of variation and the value of variation, we have an interesting interview coming up. We have Rick White joining us. Rick is the president of the Atlantic League, which is a minor minor league baseball organization and the Atlantic League has jumped to our attention this year especially because of the experiments that they are running with various rules in baseball and we've got some of them we're kind of surrounded by them actually the Atlantic League so we're delighted to welcome to the show and to have a chance to talk with Rick White president of the Atlantic League Rick good morning to you good morning Cade how are you uh, great great and we're delighted to have you where are you calling in from this morning I'm in New York City today. I've spent most of the summer on the East Coast for obvious reasons. <laughs> well, well, tell us tell us about that. Where what are your travel and what what do you have to do physically to when you're president of a, an Atlantic League which is distributed across a number of cities? Well, in in normal circumstances, I visit with our teams and I evaluate the quality of umpiring. I take a look and take stock of what's going on with the club. I answer questions they may have about administrative details and normal league business, whether it has to do with dues payments or sponsorship or one thing or another in that vein. Uh, This year, the dialogue has changed considerably because of our new partnership with Major League Baseball. And a fair amount of my time has taken place in ballparks, uh, testing and training umpires and um, looking through and working with MLB regarding their systems, especially on the automated balls and strikes that we're, we're going to roll out tomorrow night. Well, we're, we're excited to hear more about this. Can you, can you begin with, at the beginning with us with, about the Atlantic League? Because everybody's not familiar with you. And, and, and the, to be fair, baseball's minor league system can be a little hard to understand. I mean, there's, it's not a uniform system, right? So, uh, it, it is not, and uh, the question is a valid one. Um, most of your listeners would refer to minor league baseball and think of it in terms of that system which develops players to get to their favorite big league team. Right. Those teams work under what are called affiliated agreements, and they have an exclusive relationship with a parent team to deliver 
major league baseball ready players to the big leagues. They are generally controlled, uh, both systematically and financially, by the big league club. Right. We, though, are a little different. We are independent. We don't receive subsidies from major league baseball clubs. We don't have a relationship with any particular major league club. We work on a fully baked PL in eight locations, largely in the mid Atlantic region. We have one club in Texas. Our players are different. They aren't being groomed or developed for big league play. In 60% of our rosters, uh, our players have MLB service time. Most of our other players have AAA and usually no less than AA experience. Mm-hmm. These are fully developed, mature players. Most are looking for a way back to the big leagues. Mm-hmm or to the next chapter of their career. So we already in the first half of our season have transferred 48 players to Major League Baseball or other professional leagues or their affiliates, Mm -hmm. including Mexico, Taiwan, South Korea, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So our players operate at a very high level, and they play to win every single night because they're all looking for a way to scratch and claw their way back to big league baseball. Got it. And, and are, we so are, are delighted to help them with that. Our team teams then scout your league basically. And do they, how, how is that typically done? Are there are guys in stands watching players? Or are they just scouring data that come out of the games? I assume that's a, I mean, cause they have to scout, you know, they're scouting, they're scouting internationally, they're scouting amateurs, and I assume they're scouting unaffiliated minor league teams. They are, and uh, typically at our games, including this season, you will find at least one scout and often multiple scouts looking at our players. This season, though, we have begun to utilize the same advanced analytics system, TrackMan, that pervades Major League Baseball, AAA Baseball, and AA Baseball. Right. So that each day, our data is now being transmitted to each of the 30 MLB clubs so they can evaluate the analytics in addition to watching our players perform. Okay. Rick, let's talk just a little bit more about the leagues so we understand the league. So who are the owners of these teams and then what does the governance look like and how do you get membership? I mean, what, if we, if we happen to have a bunch of money to buy a team and we wanted to have a, a Philadelphia, West Philadelphia member of your team, would that, would that be possible? So just how does that, how does that, how do those kinds of things work? It, it is because we don't subscribe to the territorial prerogatives of MLB or of affiliated minor league ball we have the opportunity to bring professional baseball at a very high level to communities that desire it. Each of our clubs is owned by usually a principal owner, occasionally a partnership with a managing general partner. Uh, We charge a membership fee, which is the highest in independent baseball, although our transaction values generally not do not uh, match those of affiliated baseball. Uh, Our owners tend to be the same sorts of people who would, purchase any professional baseball or professional sports franchise. Uh, They have high degrees of discretionary income. Uh, Most of them operate in the top 1% of the country, as as it's currently described politically. And these are people who have a passion for both their community and for their teams. They want to bring 
sports to their community. They want to create a recreational asset for their fellow residents, and <clears throat> they're they're looking to um, be a big part of the fabric of the municipality or county where they live. Mm-hmm. And just one last question: What are some of those municipalities? I think of Lancaster. We looked around for some of our closest games. I think Lancaster might be our our neighborhood team. Can you give us a quick rundown of the other cities? Uh, Lancaster is right down the road for, from you in Pennsylvania. Also south of Lancaster is York, Pennsylvania. We have teams in New Britain, Connecticut, centralized Lift Long Island, Bridgewater Township, New Jersey, Waldorf, Maryland, High Point, North Carolina, and we have a team in Sugarland, Texas, uh, uh, an area just outside of Houston. Right, right, right. Those guys have a little bit different travel schedule than the rest of the team. They, they do. They, uh, they they suffer from sleep apnea. Yeah, right. So, listen, we've got um, we, we, you guys jumped out to us, obviously, because of all the experimentation. I mean, one, we're social scientists, and so we're big advocates of experimenting. And it's sometimes tough to get organizations to experiment because, it, you know, Somebody's going to be treated differently, and you have to deal with uncertainty, and so we're thrilled. Yeah, I mean, yet the reason people experiment is that it is the gold standard for figuring out what actually matters. So we're thrilled when we see somebody like yourself doing these kinds of experiments. Let me just run through a real quick list. These aren't all of the same magnitude, but I think the set of them is pretty astounding. So just real quickly, this is at least as I understand it. These are some of the experiments. Um Pitcher is required to step off the rubber in order to attempt a pickoff. For some reason, in my little league days, that was always required. So I'm not sure what's different there, but let me keep going. One foul bunt is permitted with two strikes before a strikeout is called, meaning before a foul on a foul bunt with two strikes doesn't count as a foul. It counts as a strike. You're going to relax that a little bit. Batters may steal first base on any pitch not caught in flight. But he can be thrown. So this is always happens on the last pitch of a, of, of, of a third strike or whatever. Now it can happen on any, anyone. Check swing rule is made more batter friendly. That's vague, but sounds helpful. And then oh, now we're getting some big ones. Home plate umpire assisted by radar tracking system. This is the one that's really caught a lot of attention. No mound visits permitted by players or coaches other than pitching changes and medical visits. My God, that would be helpful. Pitchers must face a minimum of three batters or reach the end of an inning before they can exit the game unless the pitcher is injured. Is this going to lead to fake injuries? This is also this is great for like speed up this game and reduce the game the pitcher changes. Increase size of bases from 15 inches to 18 inches. I don't know. I'd love to hear what that's about. And then time between innings and pitching changes reduced by 20 seconds or about one sixth from 205 to 145. That's a lot of stuff. So. Let's, we can talk about the specifics, but let's start with, like, where does that philosophy come from? This is neat, and it's unusual. Well, don't forget, this is a partnership with Major League Baseball. And their competition committee, and frankly, their entire constituency, is concerned about the play dynamics at the Major League level. One of the astounding pieces of information they presented to us as part of their rationale is that the, the action itself has gone out of the game in a way that fans have traditionally appreciated, whether that's running, hitting, great defensive plays, lots of action going around the bases. Roughly 25% of the play-action characteristics of baseball have declined over the past decade or so as pitching has accelerated at a faster rate than hitting. The stat that everybody talks about uh, begins in 2018, where for the first time in history, strikeouts outnumbered hits 
in the game of professional baseball right, or right. The, at the level of Major League Baseball. MLB, summarily put, is trying to put more action back into the game. Okay. So that's number one. Number two, their ancillary um, rationale includes pace of play. They want to speed things up. And third, they want to increase the safety of players. And if you think about those three criteria, everything fits in very neatly into the experiments that we're performing for them. So how did they choose you, and why did they choose you? Uh, A couple of reasons. Number one, we enjoy a very positive, constructive relationship personally with uh, many folks in the commissioner's office and at the Major League Baseball level. Number two, every club is aware of us because every one of the 30 clubs has uh, signed our players over the last several years. Mm -hmm. And lastly, and you'll recall I said this, our players are out there to win every day. They're highly skilled, and this gives them a much more telling beta test than something they could do during a couple of weeks during spring training or in the Arizona Fall League or in okay. the rookie league. Okay. Um, our players are better, faster, quicker, um, and and therefore the results in our league will be far more genuine, if you will, far more authentic than with some other means. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. We're talking to Rick White. Rick is the president of the Atlantic League, a minor league, unaffiliated league of teams here around the Mid-Atlantic area, plus Sugarland, which is outside of Houston, down in Texas. We're talking to Rick because the Atlantic League is doing all kinds of interesting experiments right now to learn how they can tweak, refine, improve even baseball. So, Rick, this is Eric Bradlow. I want to ask you, since you guys are running experiments, do you have a statistician with the Atlantic League who talks about, who has experience, let's say, in A-B testing, who has uh, experiment uh, experience in sample size, who has experience in, let's call it, analysis of experimental data? Like, how is that all being done? Eric, we do not. Uh, we are a typical minor league in terms of resource deprivation. You know, minor league baseball counts its nickels and pennies, and so we don't have that kind of resource. However, we are tracked every day in every game by MLB, and they do have the resources to evaluate what's going on. One of the huge revelations for us has been to fully understand not just the resource Major League Baseball has in its front offices or in its commissioner's office, but they have a wealth of material and opportunities afforded to them by scientists who they've retained to evaluate all kinds of issues regarding the game. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we we find uh, as i said before revelatory it's it's incredible Mm -hmm. Uh, so virtually everything we're doing they are tracking closely and then adding on to that we constantly are having discussion and review sessions so that we are giving them not just through me as a mouthpiece but through our players and managers feedback as well and you know sometimes it's the qualitative stuff that complements the quantitative um, information and makes for not not necessarily a better or different result, but the application of result is really where they're headed because of the, ultimately their stated purpose 
is to take these tests and new equipment initiatives and bring them to Major League Baseball. Well, uh, Rick, let me ask you about two of the ones that you've talked about. One is the, let's call it the automatic uh, pitch uh, ball strikes by umpires. Um, are you having the umpires also call the balls and strikes, even if they don't announce it, so that you can understand how calibrated they are? Because, like, you know, it would be it's easy to say they would have got it wrong, but if you don't know what they would have called, there's no way to score it. So how are you dealing with that one? That's a great question. We tested the system in our umpires during the entire first half of our season. We would have a download after every game where we would ask the umpires not just about the communication equipment that was relaying the automated ball strike information to them, but how they felt about the strike zone they were hearing in their earpiece versus the strike zone they would have called. And probably on a dozen occasions uh, each game, we would hear that an umpire might have called it differently. <clears throat> when you look at the specific pitches, it's easy to understand why. But what's what's an example? Move, um, think about a right-hand batter facing a right-hand pitcher who has a great breaking pitch. If that breaking pitch starts out over the plate and breaks down or away off of the plate, because the catcher has to use, generally speaking, his left hand to catch that ball and is crossing his body with his gloved hand, umpires are loath to call that a strike. Mm. It doesn't, quote, look good, right. close quote. Mm -hmm. With advanced analytics, we know that that pass through the strike zone within the individual player's strike zone over the plate, and in fact, it is a strike. Uh, so that was one. The mm -hmm. other one where there is a preponderance of, I wouldn't call that a strike, is what we all refer to as the high inside fastball. Mm -hmm. Now, traditionally, that is a great out pitch for a pitcher. But over the course of time, umpires unwittingly have kind of lowered the strike zone to where it's roughly at the Major League Baseball level, a ball above the belt. Well, that's not the way the rule book defines a strike. The rule book defines a strike as just underneath the batter's chest. And again, I'm simplifying this. And so we've given back roughly two and a half baseballs worth of strike zone to wow. a pitcher. Wow. wow. What we are confident of, and, and this is an implication, and, and again, we're we think we play at a four A level. But let's just say we play at a triple <laughs> A level. That's a nice line, all right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, if you look at the quality of our hitters and you think about the quality of MLB hitters, they have the ability to make minute adjustments pitch by pitch by pitch. And so if we can provide them a consistent strike zone, which we are doing with this ABS system, they then can make the adjustments they need to make in order to get wood on the ball. Uh -huh. So, Again, I'm rambling here, but if you'll indulge me, 98% of the pitches that are taking place during a game can be very accurately measured by the automated ball strike system. I, I mean, within a quarter of an inch. What is interesting, however, is that there are certain pitches that escape the accuracy of the system oh, no. because they're outliers. Oh, no. So, no, no, no. This is all completely, completely explainable, and it's it's common sense. Okay. A breaking ball that breaks in front of the plate and bounces up through the strike zone uh, is okay. going to be tracked as a strike. Okay. A hit by pitch 
uh, catcher's interference, a check swing, okay. can all have an impact that is, a, a, you know, a common sense ball strike or other result. Right. So our umpires, while they have now been trained to call <laughs> the ABS strike zone, and in fact, in the vast majority of cases, that's exactly what they're doing. They're merely signaling the indication they're hearing of ball or strike in their ear. They have to be alert to those outliers so that they can use, quote, an override, quote, right. quote feature right. Right. to make the right call. Okay, got it. So listen, this we're talking to Rick White. Rick is the president of the Atlantic League. They've been doing some experiments, most notably with automatic ball and strike counts, um, calls. And what my, my, my summary of this would be that you're, so you're doing this thing that's been speculated about for a long time. I mean, this you're, people have, my Shane, my buddy Shane Jensen here to my right has I always, I love the robot umpires. He wants the, he wants the Jetson, <laughs> the Jetson ball strike counter back there. But here's my summary, because, so we're hearing for the first time, guys, the difference in what yeah. this, and so what we're hearing is, this thing is 98% right. The things it's wrong about are transparently wrong and easily overridden. And then fascinatingly, we now know, at least at least as reported here, and I don't know how statistically rigorous this is, but it makes sense. We know the places where the umps have, got, have tend to get it wrong. These two places, the umps tend to get it wrong. And so this, these are possibly corrective mechanisms. Now, the other thing you said was, we're going to go back to the to the rule book, and we're going to give the pitchers back two or two and a half balls worth of height above the belt, which terrifies the casual fan because pitchers don't need any more help right now. But very quickly, you're saying, yeah, 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 but there's a benefit. If we can be reliable, we trust our batters. If we can be more reliable about what's balls and strikes, our batters are going to compensate. Now, that's a speculative thing, but I, but I, that's my overall summary of what you've just described. and. I think it's fascinating this because this is exactly the kind of thing that's been speculated about for years. You've performed that summary a lot more adeptly than I could, but that's exactly <laughs> what's going on, and it's very accurate. So tell us, but what about the reaction? So the, how are the umps reacting? How are the players reacting? How are the coaches reacting? How are the fans reacting? How, what's been the experience? This has been fascinating, and, and I'd really love for you to come see one of our games so you could check it out for yourself. We've talked about coming up to Lancaster. We'll, 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 we'll make a run up there. Okay. Um, we've had a couple of true surprises in all of this. Number one, let's start with our players. Our players have been accepting. They have been enthusiastic. Their comments are entirely constructive, even if they have a question mark or a comment or something else that one might perceive as negative. They really have helped us course correct as we go through this. Moreover, and this is a tremendous, a tremendous surprise, and I think it'll catch you as a surprise, our umpires, to a person, have enthusiastically endorsed automated balls and strikes. That's shocking. They want to get it right. They realize that we are there to assist them, not to inhibit them. They realize now that we are in deeply into the test and engagement that we aren't going to ask them to go away. We're not going to eliminate a job. We are not going to embarrass them. Don't forget, we could have just gone with lights or bells or whistles or something like that. Instead, we're honoring the traditional signaling they do by hand. Mm -hmm. Moreover, <laughs> and this is something people don't normally recognize, they aren't thin-skinned. These are all very durable, very intelligent gentlemen. But 
uh, the single most controversial uh, occurrence in any ball game is a batter, a coach, or a manager who is constantly uh, questioning their strike zone. Right, right. I can't tell you how often the chirping goes on in any professional baseball game. Right, right. And this has removed not all of it, but most of it. That's amazing. And we're, we're still going to have a debated play at home plate or a debated play at the bases. Yeah. But be, I think because of age and because most players have grown up embracing technology, the, our players have expressed they have more confidence in the automated balls and strikes than they do with the 80 different strike zones they right, encounter right, right. with our 80 different umpires. Yeah, that's remarkable. And, and, you know, and, and again, I'm speaking a bit out of turn, but I think your listeners will be interested in this. Our umpires have been tremendous. And when I say tremendous, I can't begin to tell you how much they have contributed to this uh, experiment. Around by, by the way, how many umpires do you have working in the Atlantic League? Uh, 83. 83. And they've got full-time jobs somewhere. So they're so doing they have full-time jobs or they are full-time umpires. And, and so they have an umpiring career both I summer see. and winter in college um, and or professional baseball. Okay. Got it. Got it. Wow. And I, half of our umpires have come to me, literally half, and said, geez, I wish we could use this in the conference I'm working or really? in the other professional yeah. baseball league I'm working in. Um, but what's really curious is we read about – MLB umpires, none of whom has contacted us, none of whom has expressed any curiosity whatsoever, either individually, severally, or through their union. And they all are saying, this is an awful thing. We're taking some of the fabric and character out of the game. I understand why they're doing that. But I think if they understood what's really happening, it might change their view what I have learned, and I think what you would all intuit, is that umpires, almost by constitution, want to get it right. And who, when faced with the opportunity to get it right, or to do things the old-fashioned way, would elect to do things by hand when they can get it right. 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 It just it just levels the playing field. Well, it's glad so, it's good to hear that it, things have gone that well with this because it's got to be. I mean, it, it's all seemed inevitable. It's just a matter of time, really. And you guys are figuring out how to do it a little more smoothly, and you're and you're reporting that it actually has been smoother than, than a lot of people would have expected. We're going to have to let you go, but I want to ask one last question, and it's an, a, an experiment that's not on this list that I thought was going to happen. What what did I hear? Am I making it up? I thought y'all were going to. Uh, push the mound down. I thought you were going to reduce the height of the pitching mound. Did... No, that's never been discussed. What was discussed oh, the distance. was the distance. moving the pitching yeah. rubber away from home plate. And not trivially, and right? There's like a foot or two. It was uh, uh, 24 inches. Right. What's interesting is most people think the pitcher's mound is in the center of the square created by the base path. It turns out it's actually closer to home plate than, the middle. than not. Okay. Now, Early on, the pitcher's mound moved all over the place as baseball was developing. Okay. And we've kind of settled into this 60 feet, 6 inches, and everybody kind of thinks that that is gospel. Right. Uh, I'm not necessarily a proponent or, frankly, a, a, an opponent of moving the mound, but that was discussed as part of our early discussions. Um, it hasn't gone away as a discussion item, 
but it was it was never asked to be deployed in the league. Um, that you know the discussions weren't necessarily confidential. This isn't backroom stuff. But in the course of discussions, at the end of the day, we said uh, I, I said I should rephrase. Major League Baseball said, "Let's not do that this year." So okay. we'll see what happens down the road. But okay. um, we're we're pretty satisfied with the ten initiatives we're working on. Yeah, you got a lot, you got a lot going on. Listen, Rick, thanks for talking to us about all those things you have going on. Thanks for the great work. We'll we'll be paying attention. We wish you the best with all of it, and we really appreciate the time you've given us this morning. Thanks so much, fellas, and we'll look forward to seeing you at one of our games this year. Absolutely. Rick White, president of the Atlantic League, minor league baseball, unaffiliated minor league baseball, eight teams around the Mid-Atlantic and Sugarland, Texas. They're doing some experimentation in partnership with Major League Baseball, trying to figure out how to refine the game in positive ways, including, importantly, automating balls and strikes. Uh, Shane, I wanted to ask you, I was looking at the different sports. You know, I looked at three major sports, baseball, football, which is kind of back in swing now in the NBA. And I was looking at what I considered a gross amount of what I'll call mispricing of winning the Super Bowl, and I wanted to get your thoughts. Okay. All right. So let's start with baseball, okay? Um, In baseball right now, it appears that the Dodgers are the favorite, and the Dodgers are roughly 3-1. to Yeah. Now, can you tell me the math that gets the Dodgers to 3-1? to And let me give you an example. You agree that there are six divisions in baseball. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there will be six division winners in baseball. So the question becomes, why are some division winners like the Dodgers 3-1 to one, and other division winners like the Twins at 15-1? to one? No, and I, I do think, I, I, I've i sort of noticed too, the odds seem to kind of really cluster. I, I, I mean, I think... I, I don't. I don't think it's rational. I don't think it's reasonable. I think that is kind of you know. I think, but I, I'm seeing this kind of clustering that's happening in the odds between the kind of teams that are kind of in contention are, are, are essentially locked into winning their divisions that we expected versus the teams that are locked into the winning their divisions that we did not expect. And so I think. Like, I see. So you that, think the variation is not coming from conditional on them getting there? It's who are we sure is going to get there at this point? Yeah, that's right. But you think the Dodgers that... being... Let me just say, you think the Twins, having given their lead, although it's not for sure, they have essentially one-fifth the probability. It's of... not really about getting to the playoffs. I think it's about a belief that... A, I think most people, when you know, I think the odds do not kind of acknowledge at least my kind of coin flip sort of hypotheses that once you get to the playoffs, it's essentially a coin flip. I think, you know, we have a group of teams, the Astros, Dodgers, and Yankees, that are going to definitely make the playoffs. And that most and they're people... all roughly the same, although there is an ordering. It goes Dodgers, <coughs> Yankees, Astros, yeah. which, by the way, just so you know, is also, if you use the Pythagorean, you know, plus yeah, minus, yeah. that is also the ordering. The yeah, Dodgers right. are plus 165, Yankees are plus 136 in runs scored, and Astros are plus 117. And that monotonic ordering, if you want, is the betting line right now. Dodgers, Yankees, Astros. But they're in a totally different tier than Cubs, Braves, and Twins, right. who are at the currently the other division Yeah, winners. that's right. And I, and I think that tiering... Kind of the, that 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 tiering that we're seeing 
is is based on an expectation that those teams, once the playoffs hit, will have kind of a, an unusually high degree of, of, of certainty of, of winning the series and actually making it to the World Series. But, I just don't, I don't buy it myself. Yeah, I think why, once I mean, why the playoffs hit, I mean, do you have any it's belief? Let's flips. take a simple example. Yeah. Do you have any belief that the Yankees' best two pitchers or three are better than the Cubs' best two pitchers or three? No, not in a short, not, 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 not in that a, they wouldn't play until the World series, series, but I'm just saying, not what in a makes, seven game series. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. What no, makes hitters going to win more games you know, than the hitters, Cubs. hitters get hot and cold. Pitchers have, you know, like Clayton Kershaw, one of the greatest pitchers I've ever seen, can have some bad playoff games. A lot of stuff can happen in um, a seven or five game series. And, so I, I think that that's essentially why I buy into the coin flip philosophy that, you know, in a, in a prospective sense, once you get to the playoffs, your odds of winning the World Series cannot deviate very much from one over the number of teams that are in the playoffs. All right. Well, let's go then to football. So one, a sport you and yeah. I have a deep yeah. passion for. So right now, there's two teams that have are in the, let's call it the elite top tier. Not surprising. Pats obviously are yeah. one of them. The Chiefs and the Pats, they both list as six to one. What do you think about that? Chiefs and Pats at six to one. Um, I mean, it's interesting. They're, they're, to, to make it to the Super Bowl or to no to, to win to win the Super Bowl. I mean, they're both coming from the same conference. That can't help either of them, right? Um, I guess that's. Uh, I, I mean, I certainly you have to believe they're the one and two seed, right? Because you know yes, you've talked it, about it, number if, of coins. If they're not the one and two seed, they have to play an extra game, and by definition, that should already double their that's odds. That's right. And I mean, I think if I had to kind of power rank the teams within the AFC, they would be the number one and two teams. Um, but I still think those. I think those odds are like too too favorable to them. You but know, doesn't, let's say they of, are one and two. Doesn't that essentially get them to the final eight? It does. It, not yep. essentially. It exactly yep. gets them to the final eight, which yeah. means maybe you know it's six to one instead of eight to one. And on the flip side, you can see how they believe the AFC versus NFC. Mm-hmm. The Rams and Saints are yep. the other flip, and they're a ten to one. So in some sense, there is a coherence in that the Chiefs and Pats, at least according to the betting odds, are a little higher than eight to one. Yeah. The Rams and the Saints, who I think you would agree, are probably the top yeah, two no, teams I mean, in the I, I NFC, think that, right? And and but and I think that does reflect a little bit more. Kind of, there is more uncertainty about which are the top two teams in the NFC compared to the AFC. I do think kind of the There's Chiefs a lot and more Pats compression. sort of stand out um, a little bit more. Though I mean, you know, on our, you could make a solid argument for the Colts and 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 several other teams. Um, but no, I, what, I think there is. More uncertainty in the NFC about even what those top two teams would like. I think I think the Eagles are going to be one of the I think the Eagles are going to be one of the teams with the buy at the end of the season. But that's you well, know not going to necessarily be. I'm not sure if that's reflecting their odds. Are they as high up? Well, I'll I'll get to that in a second. I, the other thing I love to do with odds, I like to talk about relative odds. Mm-hmm. So you know we're saying you know the Chiefs and the Pats are the favorite. Okay, so let me ask you a question. You've obviously been a I'll call it. Whenever the Pats play the the Ravens and Steelers, you've obviously, for good reason, been concerned in the sense that there's been <laughs> yeah, some that success. Was, that's right. Um, what if you were scoring? Suppose I told you the Pats are six to one. That is what they are. What do you think the Steelers should be? 
I just want to get your idea of oh, calibration. Man, how, yeah. words, how look for example, just for our listeners on Wharton Moneyball, if Shane thinks they're half as likely, maybe you put him at twelve to one. Yeah. If you think so if the Pats are six to one, where should the Steelers be? I'm just trying to get a good yeah, stall no, in I your mean, mind. It, 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 it's a great question. You, you picked a tough team to evaluate, right? Because the Steelers are gonna look pretty different this very different this year than they did last year. Um I think the Pats are at least twice as likely. Okay. To win the Super Bowl as the Steelers, but I don't think the Pats are four times as likely. It's interesting the range so you I gave. Kind of the would... Steelers are twenty to one. Okay, yeah. So you know, in about three and a half times less yeah. likely yeah, to win. Yeah, yeah. So you don't I think mean, that's horribly? I don't think that's horrible. I mean, I might put them up a little bit higher, like maybe like you know three times as likely as opposed to three point five times. But yeah, I I, I think that's I, I think that's relatively reasonable. And by the way, just to give you an example, yeah. that's from the first this is another thing I looked at AFC NFC. The first team to the sixth team, the Chiefs to the Steelers, are basically Chiefs Pats to the Steelers are about a three and a half to one ratio. In the NFC, to go from the top team to the sixth team, which is Rams to the Cowboys, it's only a two to one ratio. Yeah, it's exactly I think that again what you were saying. The uncertainty, I think there the is a lot more uncertainty about exactly what the top teams are that are going to come out of the NFC. Um, just based on, I think you know, uh, well, I mean, obviously, like changes over the over the off season, but also just I think it was a it was a more competitive race even last year. Absol- no, absolutely. And yeah. by the way, the Eagles are sitting there at fourteen to one. Yeah. So yeah. you know yeah. they're they're in one of the top teams. All right, let's go to the NBA now. So I also looked at the top six or seven teams in the NBA. So if the Clippers, who are the favorite, are plus three fifty, so you know they're some sense if you do one over one, mm. one over one plus four three point five, they've got somewhere around a twenty percent odds according yep. to this of winning the NBA championship. What the the Warriors? The Warriors. Let's remember who the Warriors yeah. are. And I understand they don't have Kevin Durant anymore, and I understand they Clay aren't Thompson's who they were. But yeah. They are who they were. How much less if the Clippers are plus three fifty? What do you? Where would you put a fair betting system on the Warriors? The Clippers are plus three fifty as the favorite. I mean, th- this is thing is is I think let's NBA- assume let's assume Clay Thompson comes back and is able to play the end of the regular season in the playoffs. So it's oh, still Steph. Yeah. Well, that's the prediction. Yeah. So it's still Steph Curry. It's still Draymond Green. It's still Clay Thompson. You know, it's now D'Angelo Russell. Let's imagine that that's their squad. But their basic I, I, again, in the sort of under this kind of relative structure, I would yeah. say that they're twice or somewhere between twice and three times less likely to win the championship right. compared to the Clippers. According to the betting odds, yeah. four times. Okay. That seems yeah. a little bit mispriced to me. Like, if the Clippers are yeah. plus 350, should the Warriors really be plus 1,400? I, I, I mean, I think this is going to be an interesting NBA season because I think, you know, over the past six years, with the uh, with the uh, Warriors being so dominant and, and, and when LeBron was on the Cavaliers, I think there was a lot less uniformity in the playoff. Either the playoff odds had a real dramatic drop drop off because you know we all were kind of sitting there being like well maybe there's one other team besides the clip uh, besides the warriors that makes it to the the NBA championship i think things are a little bit more wide open now actually that the that that the, the that super team got kind of broken up and so i think there's more uncertainty i think in the nba this year than there has been in the past four or five seasons and i don't i'm not sure that's actually kind of reflected or manifests itself yet in the kind of NBA championship odds. It seems like those kind of like um, the disparity in odds is more reflective of kind of our previous last five years where there really was these dominant couple teams. I mean, the Clippers do look like the best team going in, but they don't look like this dominant team like the Warriors have been. 
No, we also have the Clippers, yeah. Lakers, uh, Rockets, you know, etc. Oh, there's several we teams. Have you get, and, we and, have uh, all of them yeah. within. And it's, well, interesting. Except for, aside from the Bucks, we've been t- entirely discussing Western teams, right? So in the East, you got to kind of think, you know, the Bucks and maybe there's a the odds should be pretty high on the Bucks and Sixers, just because I think there's less uns- you know there there's i guess less competition in the east and we're more sure that those guys are kind of kind of be well, sitting question. there at the end if i I'm, I'm pretty sure i think i know your answer to this if i gave you the bucks and the sixers or the field to make it to the nba championship i'd take the bucks and the sixers absolutely yeah. i think absolutely. Fact, i think it's well of yeah. i think you'd have to give me That's odds right. to take the field not even 50-50 yeah. i think the bucks and the sixers are the two elite teams in the east and i don't think anybody's particularly close yeah, maybe you it, could say if this, everything turned right for the celtics it, you know you would say the nets if, well, if kd was on the nets next year you would right. say the nets with kyrie irving kd everybody they've signed but I, I would think the Bucks and the Sixers have to be overwhelming favorites. I, I agree, and it's interesting because again, you know, we it, it, it's the the West used to be like that as well that you had this overwhelming frame of, of favorites. So I think it's an exciting time to kind of sort of see this that the West has kind of opened up. All right, now the other thing I wanted to do before we get to our over under segment is last week on Moneyball. We talked about. I'm not going to bring up hot dog eating again because Kay doesn't want me to. Oh, but, we, just, but we talked about it in the. I, top. I, it's always a safe space here for hot dog there eating when go. I'm concerned. You but know. we did talk about it in the concept of exceedances. In other words, mm-hmm. Joey Chestnut was so much yes. greater than the next guy. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, thank you to our fans. So just for a note, our, our fans can always call into the show at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. They can always tweet us at at w moneyball. They can always email us at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. We actually got, I asked a question to our fans, what are the greatest exceedances you've seen? Yep. I wanted to run through these and see how you would yeah. score them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the first one, uh, Chris Fitzpatrick came in and tweeted to us, Tiger Woods in his prime. Yeah, and I mean, actually, when we, I think when we had that discussion, if I didn't say it on the air, I certainly was thinking it, that that is you know, watching Tiger Woods win like at Pebble Beach by you know ten strokes, or win the Masters. Or by how about 12. winning like forty percent of the yeah. tournaments he entered? Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you know, this is always going to be kind of a tough comparison because you know, Joey Chestnut's. It's it's like a one event exceedance versus this sort of like you know entire season right. worth of exceedance. But I think Tiger Woods' is prime is it, it's kind of the one that popped into well, my let's mind. Keep, let's keep going. The secretary was another one that uh, obviously that we, we, we said yeah. secretary. Yeah. How about Michael Phelps? Yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah, this was by I, I think Jeff that's... Cottrell said Michael Phelps. Yeah, how about Michael Phelps? Yeah, no, I, I think that actually is that's that's actually a great one that I I hadn't sort of thought of. But you know, the way he has kind of dominated the last couple Olympics is is pretty impressive. How about one of our frequent guests, Josh Hermsmeyer? He listed two: Dennis Eckersley in his prime, mm-hmm. and Mike Tyson in his prime. Yeah, and I, I guess I mean I Dennis Eckersley has had an incredible had an incredible career very multifaceted career and is a very impressive individual. I just think I probably wasn't watching as closely back then to kind of appreciate it. And again, that's one where sort of one of the defining moments of, uh, uh, in baseball involved Dennis Eckersley on the wrong side Obviously of the, the situation. The Kirk, the Kirk Gibson, Gibson home, home run. run. And sort of in my mind, I... I always kind of put that, you know, that that somehow is such a, a memory from that generation that I kind of, you know, almost counterbalances uh, a little bit of his dominance. Well, at let the me time. do three more um, before our over under segment. Jordan McNamara tweeted to us, Usain Bolt. Oh, yeah. Um, That's not a bad one. It's not a bad one. It's not a I mean, bad he was one. Just, at all. When he was, 
you felt if he ran even his 80%, yeah. he was going to win. Yeah. And this is against the elite of the elite. No, and I mean, he actually, him and Tiger have this interesting, like Tiger in his prime and Usain Bolt kind of in his prime. Uh, one of the interesting things is they made you kind of, re- they miscalibrated us, I think, towards how much certainty there is in outcome. Right. You know, t- Great t- point. You know, golf, you know, we're living in now an, er- an era where golf is more all over the place. Anybody can win. I mean, there's people like Brooks Kepka and, yeah, and, and all that Shane stuff. Shane Lowry and Gary Woodland won majors this exactly. year. And so Tiger tricked us for an entire generation into thinking that one person can just win all the time at golf. And Kepka's making us think some of that, too, having won like four of the last exactly right. eight majors. That's exactly right. But we constantly... Um, Kind of complain about how Tiger, you know, betting odds for 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 are, have put too much weight on any one individual to win a golf tournament, and Tiger, I think, is to blame for that because for a while that guy was so dominant. And I think in 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 track and field, Usain Bolt has had a similar effect. Where now we kind of like there's going to be a whole generation of children that grow up being like, well, why doesn't the same guy win all these events? Okay, let's go to two more. Let's go to two more. Um, how about Mariano Rivera in the postseason? This was by Tom yeah. Stilnovich. Stilnovich. Tom Stilnovich typed uh, typed in Mariano Rivera in the postseason. What do you think about that one? And I, you know, I think I I don't think of him kind of in, under this exceedance thing as much. I mean, as as a career goes, yes, I think his exceedance. You know, I mean, uh, he is the, uh, he's the first baseball player ever to have kind of a unanimous first ballot. Right? That is correct. Yeah, so I mean, like, obviously the, 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 the system has spoken as far as his dominance Especially the bias, and I don't mean bias in a bad way, the bias against closers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. closers can't get into the Hall of Fame, yeah. really. And, I, and he was just so exceptional. So in that in that respect, yes, I just, again, I, you know... Mary were very specific in the postseason. He had so many great years. But again, if you think there's been at least two, I can come up with at least two moments. 2001 and 2004. Where, you know, kind of like in, in these huge moments, he was on the wrong side of it. Now, of course, 2001 was a little different because it was an error in that inning. Look, I could replay that inning to you through the whole oh, thing. Oh, I mean, all of them. No, I mean, 2004, I could give you a second-by-second second right. rundown 2004 of it. versus yep. 2001, very different. No, I mean, he he, 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 he certainly did not pitch poorly. I, I never watched that guy ever pitch poorly, but, you know, he was Didn't not pitch well. How automatic. About that? He, he wasn't automatic How about one last cases? one, and we have two minutes left yep. for our over-under. An homage to you and yep. Mr. Canada. Hockey. Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, I mean that. I think certainly as as far a as a thousand more points the gra- in the next player. If you talk about kind of the greatest uh, player of a particular sport, and you think about it in terms of exceedance, nobody has an exceedance like Gretzky. I mean, I you know my, there there's controversy in football about who the greatest player is. There's controversy in in baseball. There's controversy in in um, tennis, in, in basketball, and tennis. Golf, not in not in hockey, not in it, hockey. Wayne Gretzky stands alone. Well, this is our opportunity to gain some ground. It's just you and me. Yeah. We're going to the over-under segment. It's Warden Moneyball's over-under. So we're going to do the rapid-fire version because yep. we just have a yeah, few yeah. minutes here. Let's start with baseball. We're doing a lot of baseball today. 0.5 World Series, let's say wins, mm-hmm. for the Dodgers, Yankees, Astros. Oh, the, one so of those So just one teams? of those. Do you, you can have, Think about it. You can have Dodgers, Yankees, Astros, yeah. or the rest of the field. Yeah, and I mean, under again, under my coin flip model, I should take the field, yes, right? Because that's only three out of eight teams. That is correct. I am going to actually go over on this. I do think it is going to be one of those three teams. And I will take one of those three teams as well. Yeah. Uh, let's go for golf. We've been doing a little bit of golf today. We talked about Shane Lowry and the British Open. 
0.5 majors next year wins for Brooks Kepka. He won like he's won like three in the last like year, right? Something he like won two? one this year, oh. but he's won four out of the last I think nine or ten. Yeah. So do, you know, do you th- let's say that's let's say he's winning forty percent over the last two and a half years. Forty percent of four is one point yeah. six. But I'm, I'm, is, I'm, you're going over or under? I'm taking over. I'm going to go under. Mm. I think that um, I think he's peaked a little bit, and you know, I, I, zero is not a bad number. So I'm going to go under for Brooks Kepka. Uh, let's just—it's not on the sheet, but let's do it anyway. Point five majors next year for Tiger Woods. Oh, I'm going to have to take the under. I want the over. I want that guy to win more, but no, I'm going to have to take the under. I, yeah. I, I think that Masters was probably just a blip. And I'm taking the under also, but mainly for the reason of the scheduling. There's been lots of articles about this. Now that all the majors are between April and July, yeah, there's that, no, that there's no rest. Yeah. He, can't, you know, he can't even play enough tournaments in between. Let's do a little NFL. Playoff appearances for the Browns, point five. Do the Browns make the playoffs this year? Remember, this is the two years ago mm-hmm. 0-16 Browns. Do the Browns make the playoffs? Um, yes. I'm going to take I'm going to take the over. I think the Browns put t- put it together this year. I agree with that. I think the Browns put it together. They have too much talent. I mean, I think they're that I would favor them to win the division though not strongly and between that and the wild card, I think they make it. Well, in. the downside is if they don't win the division, it's not obvious the wild card is going to come out of no, that division. No, that's true. Let's just do one more. 0.5 playoff appearances for the Packers. I'm going to say uh, I'm going to take the over on that too. I think the Packers make the playoffs. I think uh uh, I mean, uh, again, predicating on a season of healthy Aaron Rodgers, I think they're going to be the team to beat. Uh, I mean, they're going to face tough competition from the Bears in the uh, in the North, but yep. um, but I, I think they squeak it in. And I'm I'm, I'm going to agree with that as well. Well, this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball, or four quarters if you'd like. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. It's been great to be here for the last half hour with my colleague, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen, but obviously Adi Weiner was doing Wharton Moneyball stuff. Cade Massey was here for the first three quarters. Some combination of the four of us will be here every week, thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. Between now and then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. This has been Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.